0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To to, to Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. This is the word of the
1: Lord. Thank you, Tony. Good morning, everybody. It's really wonderful to be with you, Uh, Sandra and Jack and Sam and I. Are honored and humbled to be able to become a part of your family here, and uh, we're in, there's lots of anticipation about what's to come uh, for the future, and we can't wait for like home groups, to, home groups to get rolling this this week and to start getting to know you more and more. So allow me to just pray before we dig in here. God in heaven, we're grateful again for this day. As we come to your word, we pray that you would uh, reveal it to us in a way that maybe makes it fresh. Maybe there's something in there we've heard before, but you're always speaking through it because it's alive. So God, we ask that you'd say something to us this morning as a church. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I never thought that I would need Jesus' help to make it through community college. Do you ever have like a day or a week, or maybe there's a job or a task you're assigned, and you're just like, there's no way I can do this unless God helps me? Like, I just cannot make it through. Maybe you don't say out loud, God help me, but you're thinking that inside. And so if we back up just a little bit, uh, during my teenage years, I kind of walked away from the church and I walked away from faith. I didn't really want anything to do with God. I'd been uh, hurt by a lot of people in the church, so I walked away from that. When I was 18 years old, I had a pretty surreal experience where Jesus revealed himself to me at a heavy metal concert. That's a story for another time maybe. And um, in that moment of him revealing himself, I knew that Life had to be different, it couldn't be the way it was anymore. I had to turn away from this destruction, this death that I was pursuing and go on to something else. That was a spiritual kind of thing, but I was also trying to get my act together and I wanted to go to school. So I applied at York University and uh, into the sociology program. I got accepted there with the hopes of getting into Teachers College to become a teacher. I figured, hey, um, you know, teachers get paid pretty good. They have awesome benefits, like the, 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 the holidays are sweet. Right? Now, I'm married to a teacher, so don't even for a second try to rip on the fact that teachers get the summers off. Like, they work harder than everybody. Um, and so, and if she were here and she's on her way, she would really say, like, yeah, that's true. She'd probably get up and go, yep. So, um, and my sister was in the teaching program at that time, so I figured, hey, like, uh, you know, at least maybe she can help me along the way. Now, I should say this. Um, I hate school. <laughs> school never came easy to me. Ever. So even I can think back as far as as junior and senior kindergarten, Miss Muhammad's kindergarten class, freaking out to the point where she would have to call Alex Tomitis, my reading buddy, and he would come down to my classroom and he would pull me out and we'd go into the gym and we'd play basketball for 10 or 15 minutes. I would do anything. Like ask my mom throughout all of elementary school faking stomach aches, any reason to get out of class. Okay? If you're like that, you probably won't put your hand up, but just know that I know, okay? And then I got to high school and I could like, not go if I wanted, so, so I thought, and so I didn't. But in grade 12, I had this teacher and she said, hey, you got to get your act together. If you're ever going to have a life that matters, you need to get yourself in a university. Man, what a philosophy of life. There were other things that were in a tailspin. But I got accepted into York University, and sure enough, my history of terrible academics followed me there. And so in my first year uh, of of school I had really bad marks and at the end of the year I got a a letter from York University saying dear student 139-647-252 because schools care about you as an individual. And they said if you don't get your act together we're gonna kick you out. So they put me on academic probation. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty major. I just put a lot of money into this thing and now they're like threatening to kick me out. And so going into my second year, you wouldn't believe it, but all of my marks plummeted even lower than the first year with the exception of one A. I took a a steel drum, like Caribbean drumming elective and got an A. I killed it, but everything else killed me and they said, you need to like, you need to go away. Like you're done. And I said, the feeling is mutual. I think I need to go away. So at that time, in my spiritual journey, I'd been back and walking with Jesus for a few years now, and um, I had been serving at a drop-in center in downtown Toronto, reaching out to, uh, you know, a lot of teenagers there. And I went to my supervisor and I said, I've got great news for you. York kicked me out. I can come and work full-time at the youth center now. And he's like, are you out of your mind? Like, our students have a 90% risk of, of dropping out. 50% of them probably will drop out. There's no way we're going to let you keep working here if you don't continue studying. You either enroll in another program or you go and find work somewhere else. I was like, oh, that's like, I guess this guy cares about me, I'm not sure. So I enrolled at um, George Brown Community College, okay? He thought maybe college would be a little bit better for my wiring, a little bit better for my my learning style. And that is when I began to understand that if I am ever going to make it through school, man, oh man, do I need Jesus' help, why? I needed an infinite amount of mini miracles to actually help me be educationally uh, successful. But when I enrolled at George Brown and became a part of this incredibly liberal school down on King Street in Toronto, uh, you know, right in the heart of a number of, 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 of neighborhoods in Toronto that are defined for all these different things, all these different culturally things, I realized like if Jesus doesn't help me, I'm not going to make it through. And so within the first number of days as I began uh, making friends with my classmates, I was now interacting with people who had very strong opinions either for or against religion. Many of them were saying, religion is nothing other than a crutch for weak people. There was one guy in particular, a Muslim guy, who I remember, who was very passionate about his faith. And he was saying that you need to think and believe what I believe in because this is actually what will offer a fix to the world. My first group project, there was a transgender person in my group. And so no longer was transgenderism just some idea that I had heard about, but this was actually a person with a face and with a name, and we had to collaborate and work on this project together. There were people in my program all over the spectrum of sexual orientation and interest. All over the place. Like definitions and identities that I'd never even heard of. And like they're just added to that long list of letters. I'm like, well, what's happening here, right? There are people that if, when I got to know them, I was like, there is a lot of moral corruption in your life. Do you not see this? Like, can't you see how upside down your life is? Now, don't get me wrong. My life is, at that time, was pretty messed up and still really confusing. Uh, But I was like, this is so broken. And yet there are even other people who said morality is nothing more than a social construct placed on the weak people because they can't decide for themselves what they think is right and what they think is wrong, what they think is up and what they think is down. I'm just like, whoa, hold on a minute. Where am I, Jesus? How am I ever supposed to succeed at school if I'm surrounded by people who are just so differently minded me what on earth am i actually doing here these these were now uh, they always were but now i was coming to realize that these weren't just hypothetical situations what do you do when you meet someone who is Or, or case studies how will you interact or solve a problem that involves people of whatever now these were like my friends we were eating together we were hanging out together we were working on projects together getting to know each other how on earth was i supposed to survive this this is what i mean when i said i needed jesus's help to get through college I remember struggling with this tension. Do I uh, assimilate or do I isolate? Do I assimilate, meaning do I just become like everyone around me? Like not not say anything that might make me stand out, not pick any fights, not really defend. If people are taking shots at Christianity, maybe they won't even find out I'm a Christian. I'll just kind of assimilate and be just like them. Go to the places they go, say the things they say, watch the stuff they watch. Or on the other end of the spectrum, I was uh, tempted to isolate completely. You know, slip into class five minutes late and try and get out of there five minutes early so I never really had to interact with my classmates. Stay away from it all. But neither of those two options ever felt right because I had this sensation that, that God had actually put me there somehow. I'm not suggesting that God made me fail at York or anything like that, but that he had made a way for me to get into uh, to, to George Brown that I might be surrounded and now be able to be a light and maybe impact these people around me. This is uh, not just my experience, right? This is my story, but we all have shared experiences like this. We all go to places of work or places of play or wherever, and we're interacting with different people. And, And if we're paying attention to what's happening around our world, it doesn't take much to think or to realize this world is broken. It is not functioning the way it was meant to function, right? And so Monday morning, we wake up to news out of Las Vegas, that a shooter had rained down bullets from a hotel room, killing more than 50 people, wounding hundreds of people, terrorizing the minds of millions of people before taking his own life and escaping it all, right? And when we look at that and we say, this is evil, this is wicked. And then a couple days later, news breaks that the same shooter had actually booked hotel rooms in Chicago overlooking the grounds where the Lollapalooza Music Festival would take place, which tells us not only does evil and wickedness exist, but it's systematic. It's thought out. Evil is planned. There's an intentionality behind it. A week before that, news of Hugh Hefner's death broke. The founder of Playboy, the guy who lived... One of his life goals was to get pornography into the hands of every person, into the household, into everybody's household. Right? I would say this guy is responsible as one of the founding fathers of the pornified culture that we now live in. A couple of statistics just to get us thinking a little bit about the effects that porn has on our culture. Last year worldwide, um, the porn industry has a, an estimated revenue of $97 billion. And that's only the legit stuff. So it's probably far more than that. And those are dollars. They don't, I mean, dollars are one thing, but they don't talk about the lives that are changed forever because of it. Uh, one in four internet searches in, in the U.S. and Canada are for porn, meaning about 64 million web searches a day are for pornography. Catch this next one. This one blows my mind. 48% of young adults in the U.S. and Canada say that they come across porn on a weekly basis without ever seeking it out. So they're just going about their business online, doing whatever they're doing, and somehow they come across pornography. Do you know what this means? This means that no longer do any of us have to go looking for porn. Eventually, porn is going to find us. It's as if the enemy is, is manipulating uh, the, the algorithms of the internet in such a way that, they might make the, make, that it might make its way into our pockets, that when we open up our screens or flip open our computers, we're now being exposed to something that we were never supposed to be exposed to. Right? It's broken. A week before that, the news was filled with nothing other than, than uh, broadcasts of, of hurricanes and earthquakes and devastation and displacement and people losing their lives and crying out for support. And we look at this and we say, what on earth is going on? Thinking of these, er- these earthquakes and these hurricanes, it's almost as if the physical earth itself is crying out and saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. Think about that. I always think about how um, those verses in the New Testament that tell us that if nobody cries out, if no people will worship him, then even the rocks will cry out and worship him. Well, something's happened that even creation itself is mourning, saying this is broken. And whether you're a Christian or not, you feel this tension. You know that when you hear the news, when you go about your daily life, when you meet people, things are not the way they're supposed to be. This can't be how God made it. This is wrong. This is broken. Uh, maybe this drives you to a type of fear or anxiety. What's going on? What are we going to do? Is there any hope? Does any of this even matter? Does any of this even work? Perhaps for some of you, this drives you to escape, right? You've become so desensitized or, or numb because of the onslaught of all these news updates and all the stuff that's going on that when you, hear another, uh, when you see another broadcast, you just flick on Netflix and try to escape it all and get away from it, Right? Because you're saying, this isn't how it's supposed to be, and I don't maybe know how it is supposed to be, but, but man, I can't handle this anymore. This is way too much of a burden for me. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, then, then maybe you're living your daily life experiencing what a, a foreigner might feel. Imagine being a foreigner living in a land that's not your own, where the food is different, where the signs and the language are different where the culture and the community is different and, and things just don't make sense. I remember as a teenager, or a young kid rather, every other year, going and visiting my cousins uh, in farm country, Ohio, and we like had nothing in common because I'm from Scarborough and they're from a farm. I, I lived on, like, I don't even know how much space, they had a thousand acres of space, right? They rose, ca- like rose cattle, like they raised it. i don't even still not even sure how to say that out loud because I'm so, po- and all we would talk about is like how they say, how, how we say soda and pop. Like, like, We talk about these differences, how the speed limits are different, right? How uh, the deals down there are so much better or whatever else. We talk about these differences, but, but of course, the weight that we feel as Christians living in this broken world around us today, the comparisons are innumerable. It's so different. We know this isn't how it's supposed to be. And that's why, for the next eight weeks, we are going to dig into portions of the Old Testament book of Daniel, And we are going to learn to understand what does it mean to function as a follower of God in a totally ungodly world. And and here's the thing that we're going to learn. It's not hopeless. We're going to learn that we are not just supposed to try and survive, but that we actually can thrive in the midst of it. We can multiply we can grow we can be a shimmering light of hope and in some places we'll be a glare like a glaring so bright light of hope to people in a desperate world that are looking for something because even they know that this isn't how it's supposed to be so if you have a bible with you whether it's digital or a physical paper bible um if you want you can turn with me to daniel chapter 1. if you're looking for it in your physical paper bible like there is no shame in using the table of contents like There's this thing called common grace, good things that God gives to all people. And one of those things is a table of contents for the Old Testament. Can we just have an amen for that? Okay, so if you want to turn with me there, uh, while you're doing that, um, the book of Daniel might be familiar to you, even though you don't, we might not know the depths of it, right? Um, there are some stories in this book that have actually made their way into pop culture. So think about it. Daniel in the lion's den, right? Whether or not you grew up in church or have any exposure to Christianity, you're probably familiar with that story a little bit. A guy who, for some reason, which we'll learn in a few weeks, gets thrown into a hole where there's a bunch of hungry lions, and they don't eat him, and he comes out, and the king goes, What? Right? Uh, an incredible story. Another story, maybe uh, the three guys that don't obey the king, and so what does he do? He, he puts them into a fire, and he turns up the heat to like a bazillion degrees, and yet they walk out of there, and they don't even smell like smoke. Not even a hair on their body was singed, right? We might be familiar with these stories. For some reason, I'm always fascinated by this, uh, stories like this are so popular with children, and yet if we actually dig into the depths of what's going on, like you probably shouldn't paint a mural Of the story of the fiery furnace on the nursery wall in your house because of i mean you could to talk about god's faithfulness but these are like some pretty dark and crazy stories that take place in the book of daniel and there's actually so many connections ways that it syncs up with the culture that we live in today today our goal is to kind of uh look at a bigger broader picture what's the big narrative story that all of these little stories fit into and so we're going to do that today as we set up this series and so right from the beginning right in verse 1 it says nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon came to jerusalem and besieged it he took it over we're going to learn more about nebuchadnezzar in the coming weeks but one thing we need to know about him right from the from the jump is that he is this uh narcissistic power hungry over entitled super authoritative way too powerful definitely threatening king that's a short list okay and so basically his whole worldview is like everything ought to be mine and i'm going to raise up people who are scared of me but will do what i say and we're going to go and we're going to get it usually by military force and so nebuchadnezzar comes in jerusalem this place where god's people live this important not just geographical place but this important spiritual place in the history of god's people and he assigns nebuchadnezzar assigns this guy named ashpenaz to go and find israel's best men he says, I want you to go out and find Israel's best men, the one with the best reputation, men who are of nobility, men who have uh, people who look up to them. And I want them to be the smartest. I want them to be the most skilled. I want them to have the mo- be the most promising, uh, to have the most aptitude. And not only that, Ashpenaz, I want them to be good looking. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna take them and you're gonna bring them to my kingdom. You're gonna bring them to my courts. And there we are gonna put them into a three year long Babylonian crash course they are going to learn about our culture they're going to learn our language they're going to learn about our literature they're going to learn about our history they're going to learn about how we do things and we're going to push this on them in such a way that as we do it we actually push out everything that they know he didn't say it but he might as well have. we're going to brainwash them can you imagine how these young men must have felt not only had this king and this, this society come in and, and besiege, taken over their space, probably in the process, killing their friends and family. But now, whatever family and friends they have left, this king is not only just going to rip them out of those households and away from their families, but he's going to put them into a type of captivity. And he's going to train them up so that in three years, they will be the best of the best to serve in the king, or serve for the causes of the king who had come in and decimated all of their people. Can you just see how upside down and turned around and broken that is? I, I, I'm interested in the early verses. It says that as Nebuchadnezzar and his team and, and his, and his uh, militia, I guess, or whatever, came and took over Jerusalem, they took the religious artifacts of the Israelite people and put them in their own temples so so imagine how daniel and his crew are feeling when now they're being taken everything's being taken away even these religious artifacts these important historical things that told the story of who their people was who who their people are and they're being put to use to worship another false god imagine this is also why Uh, castration would have taken place. So Ashpenaz, depending on your translation, it might refer to him as chief of the officials or it might refer to him as chief of the eunuchs. This castration was to basically say, we don't want you guys to multiply and reproduce. We are trying to stop the nation of Israel. And if that's not enough, we're going to brainwash you. And we're going to take away your stuff and we're going to change everything so there's no familiarity, so this doesn't feel like home anymore. As if that's not enough. Ashpenaz then decides that he's going to change the names of these men. He's going to give them different names. He's going to take their their Hebrew names, these important names, and he's going to give them Babylonian names. Now, there are a number of young people that were taken and brought into the king's courts for this reason, but the story of Daniel seems to hover around and focus in specifically on four guys in particular. There's Daniel, and then there's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know those other three most typically is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he changes their names and the meanings are important. Daniel's name, his Hebrew name means God is my judge. It gets changed to Belteshazzar, which is, O lady, that means wife of the god Bel, protect the king, or may God protect his life. So Daniel, who's named after the living God, his name gets changed and says, forget about that God, but, but may, the, may this false god Bel protect him. Hananiah, we know him as Shadrach most commonly, Yahweh is gracious. That's what his name means. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. I, the, the I am, the only God is gracious to me. Gets changed to, I am very fearful of God and the commands of Aku, the moon God. Again, transformed to put on a false God. Mishael, his name is who is what God is. How beautiful is that? I am what I am, God says. I am who I am. That's what Mishael was named after. Every time his mom would have said, Mishael, come for dinner, everyone who was within earshot of that were hearing, who is like God? Nobody. His name is Worship. And it gets changed to what? I'm worth nothing. Who's like Niku? This other false god? Azariah, we know him as Abednego. Yahweh is a helper, is what Azariah's name means. How the God of the universe, the creator, lends a hand and helps us along in our humanity. Now it's changed to servant of Nebu, The shining one these names matter a lot how many of you are named after somebody significant in your life a father a grandfather mother grandmother something like that right yeah i don't i don't know if i ever really grasped the importance of a name until we had our own children Um, i guess i sort of did my middle name is anthony i was named after my nunno my my grandfather on my dad's side Um, my brother's middle name is luigi he was named after an italian plumber uh, no, no. He was named after my, um, just got to see if you're with me. He was named after my grandfather on my mother's side. So these names have importance. They want that reputation or that memory to live on, right? And then we have our kids and we name our first son Jack. Do you know what Jack means? It means man or boy. So essentially we said, when, the, when he came out, they said, he's a boy. We said, that's good enough. <laughs> Now, if you look it up on Google, some English traditions might say that the name Jack actually means God is gracious. I think they're just trying to be real nice, right? So we tried to make up for that with our second son. So we named him Samuel David, super biblical, real strong, right? But names are absolutely important. And these name changes matter so much. Basically what Nebuchadnezzar and Ashpenaz were saying is, you're not gods anymore. That's not even a real god. You're mine now. I named you. I'm giving you meaning. I'm giving you identity. You don't belong to him. I've taken you away. He's mine. You're mine now. And maybe you haven't been given a new name by the world around us, but in so many ways the world is saying, you're mine. If you're going to work here, you think and act and talk like this. If you're going to study here, you better be sure not to talk about this or write about that. This is what you believe now. Maybe in your own households you have this experience. As long as you live under my roof, maybe not now, but maybe at some point in your life, you've had these things and the world is constantly trying to rip us away from God. But, but the good news of, of the gospel is that by faith in Jesus Christ, when we say, Jesus, I need you so desperately and he rescues us and we believe in his life and his death and his resurrection, there's this incredible thing that happens and that is God the Father adopts us and brings us into his family and he gives us a new name and he calls us son or he calls us daughter. He says, you're chosen. He says, you're mine. And it doesn't matter how hard anyone tries. They'll never take us away from God. They can never take us away. But Nebuchadnezzar tried. Could you imagine sending your own kids to school and them coming back and saying, hey, my name is too spiritual. They want to call me something different. That's the culture that Babylon was. And, and our world is, is complicated. It's broken. It's messed up. It's, it's, there's desperation. There's bleakness. But even still, not as bad as Babylon believe it or not if you want later this week you can go ahead and read Revelation chapter 18 which is an account of these angels who are looking back on history and they can't think of a single single society or power or influence that was ever as bad as Babylon was and yet even in the midst of this darkness even in the midst of this brokenness, even in the midst of the, all the complexity of, of, of what was happening in Babylon's history, Daniel and his crew somehow were able to strive. They were somehow able to stand out. And we're going to see that they didn't just, uh, they didn't just um, throw in the towel, they didn't just hide away, they didn't just play along like nothing serious was going on, but instead they leaned in, they engaged. They sat in the front row of those Babylonian classes and they rose to the top of their class. And eventually what happened is the king wanted nothing to do with his own Babylonian scribes and wise people because you are not nearly as smart as these men who we've taken from the tribe of Judah in Jerusalem. Isn't that that amazing? That gives us hope. They didn't do this on their own strength, clearly. They did this because God was with them the entire way. And so what do we do about all this? Like what's something we can really wrap our hands around and take with us as we go? A couple of things. Number one, I think we need to be very mindful of the threat or the risk of assimilation. And so assimilation becoming just like everyone else around us that we don't stand out or hold any type of uniqueness. We just blend in with the crowd. I think there's a legitimate threat in certain certain circumstances where we could be forced to assimilate. Right? And so I gave those examples already. As long as you work here, this is how we do business. We lie, we steal, we cheat, we do whatever it takes to make money. And as a Christian, you're feeling a tension. Even as a non-Christian man, you're like, ah, this is like morally not right. I, I, I don't know. And we feel that fight. We feel that tension. My parents, when they came to trust Jesus and left Roman Catholicism behind, their family said to them, you're joining a cult. And as long as you're practicing that and, and a part of that, whatever it is, we don't want to talk with you, right? And so there's this, f- this force where you're, you're going to be like us or you're going to be against us. There's this, this threat of assimilation. We become just like everyone around us. But there's also a risk that, that we, assimilate on, we assimilate ourselves right? Meaning meaning it's not forced on us, but we just don't really want to stand out. We don't want to cause any trouble. We're not exactly sure what we believe anyways or how to interpret the times. And so we just try and blend in, hoping to get through the day. Could you imagine if Jesus chose to assimilate? God in heaven sends him to earth, and this is what we talk about primarily at Christmas time the incarnation of Christ. Carne, coming from this Latin word meat. So basically God became meat. Flesh and bones becomes real. And so we could say Jesus assimilated to the people around him. But no, he assimilated to us in our, in our humanity, meaning he still had to grow up. He still got hungry and angry, probably at the same time sometimes. He still had to, to grow up and learn and all these things. But even though he was like us in his humanity, he was completely unlike us in that he never sinned. He never disobeyed his father in heaven, followed him every step of the way. Beyond that, everywhere he went, everywhere he went, he was the one influencing and transforming those around him and not allowing others to influence and change who he was. And so we don't want to assimilate. We also have to be aware of isolation. There's a threat that we're forced to be isolated or that we we risk actually isolating ourselves. The threat is, listen, you can't talk that way if you're going to work here. You wrote some paper that's controversial and goes against what we as a school stand for and you're giving us bad press? Like we're throwing you out. We're taking away your credentials. There's an incredible book by a guy named uh, D.A. Carson called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And the opening chapter is all about uh, professors throughout the United States, uh, maybe internationally, but the United States in particular, that lost their tenure because they came out and professed that they were Christians. They lost everything. basically basically becoming completely shamed in their their academic community, right? They're forced out to isolate. But there's this other risk, and it's that we choose to isolate ourselves. We want to pull away. Man, it's so broken out there. It's so messed up out there. It's so terrible out there. So we're just going to form a holy huddle, and we're going to get together, and we're going to pray for the Lord's return because everybody out there is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't even get that saying. Hand baskets are so small you can't even put grocery like like the bread or the cucumber sticks out of the basket let alone the whole world's going in one of those it doesn't even make sense think about it and that's nowhere near what the attitude of a christian is supposed to be we're not to isolate ourselves and pull away but instead we engage imagine jesus isolated himself imagine jesus again sent by his father in heaven begins walking around and says this place is so corrupt If I stay here any longer, they're going to make me look corrupt and dark like them. I better go hide off like a monk in a cave and practice uh, holiness and and piety and all these things on my own. No, no, no. The purpose of Jesus' holiness was that that his holiness and the holiness of God might permeate the culture around him. That he change it from the ground up. Right? And so we ought to be very mindful of isolating ourselves. Where do you tend to lean? Do you tend to lean towards um, assimilating, meaning, you know, you don't want to pick any you don't want to cause any trouble? And so all of your thinking is pretty much the same as everyone around you. You know, when it comes to conversations of 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 sex or money or morality or or business or family or whatever, you, your opinions are pretty much just the same as anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're one of these ones who wants to isolate and, and you just pull away all the time and, and you don't even know what to make of it out there and, but you actually maybe haven't even tried to understand culture and see how these two things line up. I don't think either of these are the, option, are the right option or a option even for the Christian. Instead, our responsibility is to engage. We, 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 we lean in. We say no we are here for a reason check out um verse two just flip back there for a second i think it's on the screen and the lord delivered jehoiakim king of judah into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of god i'm going to read that first part again and the lord delivered jehoiakim king of judah into his hand now what's fascinating about these verses And what it tells us about, not just the entire story of Daniel, but our purpose here in life as well, is this. Um, Daniel is most likely the one who wrote this down. Okay, That we have a copy of what he wrote down after it had all taken place. Take note of his perspective. God is the one who allowed Jerusalem to be taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. What a perspective. God is completely in control. You know what this tells us? Nothing takes God by surprise. Be encouraged by that. Okay, it's not like God was away on a trip and he just came back and was unpacking his bags and he flicks on the news and he's like, what the heck happened to Jerusalem? Well, I was gone. Like you turn your back for two days. You try to unplug. No, that's not what happened. God is never not in control. He's not surprised by anything. He's always aware of what's taking place. And it's because of this perspective, it's because of the faith and the hope and the belief that Daniel and his crew had, that they were able to engage the culture around them and not run away, but actually make a huge difference. And we'll see throughout the chapters that we study, man, Nebuchadnezzar says that we need to praise the only living God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We're going to see incredible transformation took place. And this is our hope too, church. This is our hope. Your circumstance, your situation, wherever you are, is not just by chance. God's put you there, right? Sometimes we think of this call as a disciple. We need, to, we need to go and we do need to go. Don't get me wrong. We must be going, but we also must stop and just think, hey, I think I'm supposed to just be right now. I don't have to go into a circumstance that's broken and troubling. I'm in one. God, did, did, am I here by accident or did you put me here? And we'll see every single time that he puts us there. Do you believe that he's put you wherever you are for a reason, that he's brought a person into your life or, or that he led you to a particular job? Or, or, or took you out of a particular job, maybe? Do we believe that he's doing that for a reason? If we do, and I think we ought to, our entire perspective is completely changed. And one of the ways, practically, that we can think about actually putting this stuff into, into practice is by thinking about this idea of living a questionable life. Living a life that is sold out to following Jesus that it causes other people to look at us and say, "Hold on a minute, you're a little different." Now, historically, people have looked at Christianity and said, "You guys are a lot like a little different. <laughs> you're a little weird. What's going on there?" That's okay. Embrace the weirdness. I have. <laughs> Embrace it. Love it. But 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 what I mean is, you know, you're in um, a meeting where a supervisor lashes out at one of your coworkers, just rips into them. And you can see your coworkers obviously ashamed or guilty or whatever and later on they're sitting in their cubicle and you walk by them and you say, hey, I'm sorry that took place that way. That shouldn't have happened. You didn't deserve to be talked about that way. And they look up at you and they say, whoa, what do you mean? Why, are you noti- why did you notice me? Well, you live that type of questionable life because you follow Jesus and Jesus looks for the ones that are cast out, right? Uh, maybe... maybe um, There's an argument that's taking place in your family. Hey, it's Thanksgiving, so like this is maybe real time for some of us coming out of it or going into it, where you're sitting at the table with relatives and you know that Uncle Bill is going to start going off again. And, and, And then there's this fight that's happening, and this happens every year, but this time instead of just escaping and going watching football or doing whatever you do, you actually say, whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, we're family. Can we talk about this for a second? And all of a sudden they're like, well, what do you care? You're like, well, you're my family. And they ask that question. That's what leading a questionable life is. We had a tenant that lived in our basement for a while. Um, a, a young man, he was, uh, worked as a, as a server at a restaurant. And um, we didn't actually see each other very often because he came home way before we went to bed. And uh, anyways, so I got to know him a little bit over the course of time. And I remember one time chatting with him and he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, well, I'm a youth pastor. And I'm always like, what do I do for a living? How do I make sense of this? I said, I'll just go for it. I'm a youth pastor. And he says, you're a what? He didn't even know which category, which box to check that a pastor might be even remotely associated with it. Talk about post-Christian, right? And so he's our tenant. That's the life he's living. We've got this other neighbor across the street. They're going to come together in just a second. Just hang tight. We've got this other neighbor across the street and and, like I'm learning to love him. I mean, well, I guess I'm supposed to love him. I'm learning to like him, I guess. But he's like caused major stress in our family. If you do a three-point turn in his driveway, he runs out and he bangs on your car. He takes pictures of your plates. Um, he screams at you. Uh, there was one instance where Sandra was home uh, on Matt leave with our firstborn, and I guess something happened outside, and he comes banging on our doors, and she calls me. She's like, he's at it again. What do we do? I think we called the cops on him that time. In conversations later, we learned that other people have called the cops because this dude is like a real threat to our comfort and like causing us anxiety and stress. And so another time, I'm sitting on the couch or in the kitchen or wherever, and I hear shouting coming from outside. Like, we live in a relatively quiet place. Usually the shouting is coming from inside my house. What's happening here? So I go out and sure enough, my neighbor and my tenant are just at each other, arguing on my lawn, which in the moment I'm like, this is my lawn. Why are you on my lawn? Right, because I get that, that property and that defense and that mechanism that pops up. I'm like, your beef is when people come on the first five inches of your, or five feet of your driveway, but like you're right up on my steps now. What's happening here? And these guys are fighting. And my tenant says, like, this is what happened. And my, my neighbor in, is yelling back, this is what happened. And there's this big fight. And I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. And I say to my tenant, the young man, I say, listen, dude, you need to chill out. This is an older guy. For whatever reason, he's got a big problem with this. We need to learn to just be respectful and, like, try and help him have an okay, calm life. And my tenant goes, like, why are you defending him? And I remember thinking, I have no idea why I'm defending him. No idea why I'm defending him. This guy has caused me legitimate stress. But something inside me, the Holy Spirit, came to life, came to action, and said, you need to stick up for this guy. And you need to put this younger one in his place. You need to teach him how you respect those who are older than you. That's what living a questionable life looks like. Living a questionable life is actually showing others a way of life that they're designed to crave. This is what I mean when whether you're a Christian or not, you know that something is not right that there's a brokenness in this world. We know there's something else because we are made in the image of God. There's something in the depths of our existence that cries out, make it different. Save me from this. Even in the midst of brokenness and corruption and pain and manipulation and, and, and all of these things, there is still hope in Jesus that as we trust in him, as we follow him right into the middle of our circumstances, as we realize that he has put us there That we can be a shining bright light and we can impact people around us. That's what this entire series on foreigners is all about. Before I close, a little homework for you. I know what you're thinking. New guy, homework, what? A little homework. I want us to, over the next eight weeks and perhaps build a habit of this, learn to interpret and understand the world around us by holding a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. I didn't come up with this idea. I took it from someone else. Don't remember who, but there's the credit. Depending on which way you lean, if you tend to lean towards uh, assimilating and being just like the culture around, maybe we're just reading news right, and nothing else. Maybe we're spending all our time reading leadership books and, and, and Forbes and economy magazines and all these things, learning to how we can uh, improve ourselves, whatever it might be. And, and so there, we're just becoming everything like the world around us. And perhaps uh, scripture doesn't actually make it into the pile of resources that we read our way through every week. Like, so the question is, does scripture have any authoritative value in your life? Like, do you go to it for, 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 a, for, for influence, to, to teach, to learn, to be taught by it, to learn from it? Or is it just there in a pile of other things, right? If we're assimilating, maybe we're not getting as much out of Jesus' word that we could. Or maybe you're on the other side where you isolate and all you read is scripture and all you listen to is podcasts of sermons. Don't get me wrong. We must be completely marinated, saturated, completely absorbed in scripture. It's where we meet God in an unbelievable way. But if all we're doing is that and hiding away in our holy huddles, having these Bible studies about topics that go on and on and on in circles of argument and we're never learning how, this, how the Bible actually gives us a way of interpreting our world, we're completely missing the point. Scripture, I think of the Bible physically actually as a telescope. It is a weird thing to put a telescope in your house and then look at it and say, nice telescope. A telescope is something you look through to understand what is far, be, far greater than we could ever understand on our own. Scripture functions that way. And so as we learn to engage the culture around us, we need to be having newspaper in one hand, scripture in the other, and seeing how these things play together. To that end, I'm going to invite Tony. He's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in some pastoral prayer around a number of these issues that we've been talking about this morning. Thanks, Tony. So it's Thanksgiving weekend,
0: and and I can't help but after hearing a message like that to feel some tensions in my own heart. Um, as I think about my own life, relationships, people that I'm connected to in my own life, to feel all these sorts of tensions in terms of who God is, what He's up to in the world, how He wants me to be um, joining Him in that work. And we're in the midst of this weekend that we call Thanksgiving weekend. And somehow, in the midst of all these tensions, we're meant to give thanks. So I just want to lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving. For thanks uh, for this weekend, for who God is, for what he actually wants us to be, and as we look forward through this series, for him to use these next several weeks as an empowering time for us and as a time where he continues to form his own character, his own spirit more fully in us as well. So would you join me to pray? gracious father that's what Jesus called you when he prayed to you when he was on this earth gracious father we call you that and we do that with eyes wide open um, uh, in terms of both who we are and uh, what like the world around us what it actually is we recognize ourselves that we are um, we have a deep sense often like oftentimes we're not as aware of it as we could be but there are times when we feel like you put your finger on this that we are not who we feel like we ought to be there is so much more for who we feel like we're meant to become or meant to be or whatever um not just in what we do but who we are in the core of our beings there is a frailty to us and to life and to our character and to our love and to who we feel like we're, what we feel like we're meant to do in this world that ah, it, it always seems out of reach. Jesus, we're in need. And we look around the world and, you know, just as, as Dave mentioned earlier, um, this is a broken place that we live in. And the news just kind of paints brush strokes. They're just like highlights of the many things that often go un, unreported. They're often unheard and unseen by most of the people in the world, so we can't help but um, just give some of these things that have happened in recent days to you, and pray that you would show yourself as gracious, Father, to the many people that have and families that have lost loved ones in this um, incredibly terrible shooting that's happened in Las Vegas. We can't we can't imagine what that city and the and the reverberating effects of of everything that has happened, how that's impacted so many lives, so many families. Um, We know there are hundreds and thousands of people uh, in the southern states throughout the Caribbean that are just, you know, the news reports on it for a few days, they have this journey of months and years ahead of rebuilding and trying to figure out, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? How do I get food on the table, literally, today? For my family, Jesus, would you show yourself to them as the gracious one? We don't know what to do. You are over these things, and so we cry out to you. And somehow, in all of this, you know, we recognize there's all sorts of situations in our own life that we're like, you know, just as Dave said, how am I going to get through this without Jesus' help, without Your help, God? And so, in those tensions, we pray You would teach us to be people who say, "Thank you, God." You are gracious Father. You are one who gives good gifts, even uh, when everything in front of me seems like, uh, I don't know how to deal with this. We know that because you've given yourself. You have not isolated yourself. You have not said, no, this world is far too broken and corrupt for me to come near it, so I'm just doing my own thing, and I'm going to let them do their own thing. You refuse to say that. You also refuse to say, no, I'm just going to come and like... You know, join in the craziness. No, you're not. You came. You refused to stay distant, but you refused to keep us as we are. And so you sent your son, Jesus, to be the light of the world, to leave all that was rightfully his, and to give himself fully. That's why your word says this is how we know what love is. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You came to make that which was broken whole again, Jesus. And so we pray that you would teach us to be people who bring you, Jesus, into all the places that you have put us. We pray that you would teach us to be people who believe that you have put us right where we are. That you are not distant or unaware or unconcerned or unloving. That it's by your grace, because you are gracious, Father, that you have put us where you are. And you long to show the power of your Son where we are. So give us faith. Give us eyes to see. Teach us as we go through this series together. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you on this Thanksgiving weekend. In your name we pray. Amen.